we're taking a little break um, from our focus on a healthy church, but not really. Um, you know, we've been talking about what a healthy church is, and if you are sad about that, you can turn over the notes and you can see the words that describe what a healthy church is. But um, we're not really taking a break in some sense. We're taking a break in that we're not going through the Sermon on the Mount, uh, this for the next two Sundays. But we're not taking a break because um, a healthy church, as we've said, is a church that's, that has a community of disciples. And we talked about who, you know, uh, what is a disciple? And a disciple is someone who's in this process of acquiring knowledge about God and God's spirit in their lives meets that knowledge in their lives and they become more like Jesus. Well, we're not really taking a departure because we're going to talk for the next three sermons, today, Good Friday, and next Sunday, about who Jesus is. And today we're going to talk about Jesus as, as the greatest man. And on Good Friday, we're going to talk about Jesus, who is the great sacrifice. And we're going to understand that, that the cross was not the, the beginning of his sacrifice. That the sacrifice that Christ gives to us begins much earlier. And then next, next Sunday, we're going to talk about Jesus, who is the great Lord, the great Lord overall. But today, we're talking about Jesus the greatest man, the greatest man. And some people might go, well, you know, that's kind of obvious, so, uh, you know, I guess I can kind of check out. I can reflect on Tiger Woods winning the Masters or thinking about lunch or things like that. But um, I think the reason we need to understand more about Jesus and how he is the greatest man is because when we are becoming more like him, we're not simply doing the things he did. In fact, it's really difficult for us to do that. Jesus never encountered a lot of the situations we encounter, and he encountered a whole lot of situations we will never face. And so just to say, let's do what Jesus would do, it's kind of pointless. Don't really know. But we want to know this because there's something else beyond just what he did. Um, there are things about being a human being that we see embodied in Jesus that I think tells us something, something that, that helps us, in some ways frees us, because I think our world has really distorted what it means to be a human being. You know, you hear stuff all the time. You hear things like, um, you know, being a human being means to somehow fulfill some kind of, some kind of destiny, some kind of purpose, or, or being a human being means to, you know, be whoever or whatever you want to be. That's what it means to be a human being. What it means to be a human being is that you have certain, certain rights and, and things, and, uh, they, you know, you should be able to exercise those rights. This idea of being a human being is, is often talked about like being this, this ultimate individual, self-reliant, totally disconnected unless you want to be connected, living in a world where you don't need anyone and no one needs you. Well, 
Jesus shows us a different picture. Jesus, Jesus says, in the Bible, we, we see what's happening in, with Jesus, that, that there are certain things that what it means to be a human being is, is so radically different. In fact, it moves in the, in the opposite direction. I think understanding who Jesus is also helps us understand some, some things about ourselves because simultaneously as the world is saying that you can live by, um, you know, you can, you can be whoever you want to be, do whatever you want to do, the world also presses upon us standards. Standards that are sometimes unrealistically high. I mean, we sometimes do this when we're raising our kids. Like, you have a three-year-old, and you're talking to your three-year-old like your three-year-old is 35 years old. And you can't understand why your three-year-old doesn't understand what you're saying. And it's because they're three. But we do this a lot. We, we, we expect certain things. Some, you know, I've worked with young people uh, my, whole lives and I, uh, my whole life, and I wish I were better at this, but I remind myself of this all the time, that when they drive me nuts, that remind me that they're teenagers. They're children. When I ask, when I ask the question, why would they do that? I would never do that. It's like, yeah, I would never do it because I'm not a teenager. And we sometimes don't give people the ability to do what even Jesus did. The Bible tells us that Jesus grew. He grew in wisdom. It tells us he grew physically. He developed as a human being physically. It tells us that even his reputation grew. These things grew. He didn't, he didn't start out this way. You know, I, I used to have these discussions with some of my students and then I stopped because they were just too goofy. But I would, you know, some of them would say like, no, when Jesus was born, he was you know, fully aware of everything. So I'm like, so this baby, what you're saying, the picture you have in your mind, is this baby is either coming out of Mary, walking and talking, saying whatever, it's like, hey, mom, how you doing? That kind of a thing. Or this baby is pretending to be a baby. This baby is going, oh, man, they're going to expect me to cry. I better cry. You know, not really need to cry because, you know, I'm the son of God, for goodness sakes. But I'm going to cry. And I'm not really ever hungry, but... I know, makes them happy if they think they're making me happy. So I'm going to pretend to be hungry. No. What we find here is the Bible tells us that Jesus grew. Now you might have these big theological questions about, so does that mean he stopped being God and all of that? And the answer is no. And I don't have time to unpack all those things for you this morning. But if you really want to unpack them with me, uh, come talk to me afterwards. And I explain to you how Jesus could go through this world as a human being and never cease to be God. But it tells us that he grew in wisdom. He, he, he got stronger. He physically developed. 
And, and he developed this, he was in favor with God and favor with other human beings. Even in Hebrews, it tells us he learned obedience. You know what this is saying? This is saying it's okay if you're not perfect today that you know everything. It's okay that you have to learn stuff and you have to grow and you have to develop. It's okay. And we're in a world that says it's not okay if somehow you don't come out and as soon as you try something, you're great at it, that you need to go on to something else. It's not okay to, to work and struggle and persevere. And people beat themselves up all the time because they think it's not okay. And the Bible says Jesus, the God-man, the Son of God, grew in wisdom, grew physically, grew in favor with God and man. So that's what we're going to look at today. Jesus, the greatest man, the perfect man. But even the perfect man grew. And even the perfect man learned. And so we go to Luke chapter 19. Jesus has just been welcomed, and we read through two different passages that talk about him being welcomed into, into the city of Jerusalem. And people are celebrating him because the people are seeing this guy and what he just did a few days before just made the legend crazy. It was already crazy. You know, you've heard me talk about Jesus mania. It was like Beatle mania and you see footage of, you know, when the Beatles came to America and they, and they you know, people would, you know, these teenagers mostly would be running and pressing up on the fence at the airport, and they'd be running somewhere else, wherever they were. They'd be outside the hotels, and that's how it was for Jesus. The Bible tells us that people would, would run. They would run from one place to the other because they, they heard Jesus was going to be there, or Jesus was moving from one place to, to another place, and they would run. They would all get there, and they'd all kind of crowd around because they wanted to see the next amazing thing Jesus would do, they wanted to hear the next amazing thing that Jesus would say. This Jesus, Jesus mania was, was, was crazy, but then it kind of died down because Jesus would say some of the things we've been talking about at this church. He would actually talk about what it means to follow him. He would actually talk about, you, you want to follow me? It's not just, you know, me doing tricks all the time. It's not me just healing people and making you go, ooh. It's not me just saying these wise sayings. It's not enough for you just to come and listen to me say wise things and go, that was really good, Jesus. I like that. No, he started to say, you got to follow me. He started to say, you got to take up your cross and follow me. You cannot just say these are good ideas. You cannot just say, wow me, show me something amazing, and I'll keep coming. He said, you got to follow me, and it's going to cost. It's going to be hard, because the world is not going to want what you're offering. The world is, is not going to want to accept or even let you become who I want you to become, who you were created to become. 
The world's going to resist. And I'm not just talking about the world far away. I'm talking about your family and your friends. They're not going to want you to become more like me. And so the crowds had kind of diminished. But just a few days before this, and some people, some scholars think it's just the day before, before this, what we call Palm Sunday and him coming through, something happened that reignited the, reignited the, the crowd, got Jesus mania going again. And what he does is he brings somebody back from the dead. Somebody who wasn't just a little dead, hadn't been dead for like a couple hours, no. Four days dead. And he brings them back to life. It's crazy. Now, all of a sudden, people are like, okay, 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 we've been waiting. We've been kind of impatient. We, we got kind of tired of Jesus and all his cool sayings. And, you know, okay, we've seen the healings. We've seen the, you know, helping the blind dudes and all that. All right, this is new. He brought somebody back to life. This is amazing. Because they were waiting for that moment. The people were waiting for that moment when Jesus would, would be who they knew Jesus was sent to be. He was bent, sent to be their savior. He was sent to lead this uprising. He was sent that, that, that when he said it, there would be hundreds of thousands of people that would rally to his call and they would march on, on, the, on the Roman soldiers. They would defeat them. And God's promised land would be among his people again. His holy city. His holy city that had been promised to them. His holy temple where his presence was. It would be theirs again. And they wanted it. They, they couldn't stand to, to see people there that were so unclean, so not what God wanted them to be. And they weren't just there, they were in control. And it was killing them. And Jesus, he's, he's, he's their hero. He's the guy. They've never seen anyone like him. Oh, they've had other people come along and say things. And there, there's going to be, you know, right after Jesus, there's going to be a, just a few decades, some uprisings that are led by these charismatic leaders. But nobody like Jesus. And so, you have this Jesus mania, and it's come, you know, to this moment in the city where the people are, are celebrating because they think, this is it. This is it. I'm sure there were, there were especially younger people, you know, younger men especially, thinking about, okay, what are we going to use for weapons? He's about, to, he's about to call. And they're excited. They're ready. Luke 19, 41 to 48, it says this. It says, when he drew near and saw the city, he wept over it. He said, 
Would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for peace, but now they are hidden from your eyes. For the days will come upon you when your enemies will set up a barricade around you and surround you and hem you in on every side and tear you down to the ground, you and your children within you, and they will not leave one stone upon another in you because you did not know the time of your visitation. Jesus comes to the city, Jerusalem. He looks at it. And he weeps. He weeps because he knows, despite the celebration, he knows that they don't really understand who he is. And they don't understand what he came to do. And it's going to lead to their destruction. In fact, in about 30 to 40 years, around 70 AD, Jerusalem will be destroyed. And everything that Jesus says here is going to happen. And he says, if you had known, if you had known, like right here, right now, I am telling you not just how you can avoid that destruction, but I'm telling you how you can go to victory. And victory, that also means peace. I'm telling you, but you can't see it. And he weeps. You know, there's two things going on here. There's the, the content that's going on here, but there's also this example that I, think, that I think Jesus is giving us. And it's something, again, that some people think it's just not okay. But Jesus is saying it's okay. And he's saying it's okay to have emotions. Emotions are not a sign of weakness. Emotions are part of what it means to be human. In fact, not just a part, they're a really important part. You might go, well, isn't this obvious? It's not really obvious. There have been times in church history when they try to uh, picture God as not having any kind of emotion. That God doesn't really love you, he just has good favor upon you. He's not really angry just words to help us understand. But make no doubt, it says Jesus wept. He wept. He wept for the coming destruction. And here's the not so good thing about being Jesus. You know, if we saw something like that and we knew what was coming, we might be sad, but there's really nothing we could do about it. Jesus is the Son of God. He can stop it if he wants, but he can't. Not because he's powerless, but because it's not the plan, it's not the way. The plan, the way, is to come and to tell them and teach them what is the way. That's the plan. To show them. The plan is to die on the cross. To pay the penalty for their sins. To make the way of reconciliation so that they might have his spirit. That's the plan. 
The plan isn't to stop what's going to happen if they reject it. You see, that's what Jesus is doing. He's offering the way. He's offering the way. You see, what happens, and we know this from looking in history, that if, if more of the Jewish people, many Jewish people, by the way, accepted what Jesus said, they followed him. And in their minds, and this should also be in your mind, they didn't cease being Jewish. They didn't convert from Judaism to Christianity. In their minds, they were simply doing Judaism. But now Judaism having met the Savior. And a, and a lot of them followed. Even a lot of the religious leaders followed. But not enough. You see, if they embraced this message, if they accepted him, and not just him, but they accepted his ways, there's probably no rebellion in the 60s. There's probably no destruction. And eventually, eventually they're going to share, at least in the worldly victory of Christianity in the Roman Empire. But they didn't want to take Jesus' way. Because Jesus' way said, as we talked about the last couple weeks, it said, you know when that Roman soldier tells you to carry his pack for a mile? Take it two miles. And Jesus didn't say it, but I'm pretty sure it's, you know, pretty sure I'm safe here. I'm not adding uh, untruths to Scripture. He probably said, Carry it two miles and be happy about it. Don't grumble. Take it another mile and be happy. They didn't want that. They wanted Jesus to say, oh yeah, carry it another mile and see if you can overhear their plans. See if you can find a weakness while you're walking, maybe take a few things out of their pack. No. He says, serve them. Bless them. Love your enemies. It's crazy. You see, Jesus is looking, and he's seeing this city, but he's seeing what this city will become. And the city will become this because the people reject him. And Jesus doesn't do what some of us would do. Some of us would be like, see, told you. Told you what would happen if you don't listen to me. Tried to warn you. Tried to tell you not to do it. He went ahead anyways. And we feel kind of, even if we're a little bit sad for the person, we feel kind of good that we were right. Notice what Jesus does. He doesn't take any pleasure or satisfaction that he was rejected by his own people. Instead, he weeps. He weeps. We see pictures of this in, in the Old Testament to the point where 
it drove other people crazy, but, but there's David. Before he becomes king, there's David, and, and the king, Saul, wants to kill him, doesn't just want to kill him, tries to kill him. And David, he, he sees what's happening, but he's, he, he's not going to do anything to stop Saul. And when Saul dies, David weeps. When, a, when a, one of his soldiers comes and, and lies and says that, oh, um, you know, I killed Saul. I'm the one. Because he thought he was going to get rewarded. David has him executed. Same thing happens when his son Absalom. Absalom rebels against him. Absalom publicly dishonors his, his father. His father has to flee. He's, he's torn the kingdom apart. And when Absalom dies, David weeps so much that his own general says, you are dishonoring your own men. Your own men who risked their lives, and some of them gave their lives because of your son." He didn't say this, but I think he wanted to say, your idiot son. And you care more about that guy than you care about your own men. We see pictures of this. And I'm not going to tell you David was right. I'm not going to tell you, you know, his obsession with Absalom was healthy. But when we see Jesus weeping over Jerusalem, what we're seeing is we're seeing that these strong emotions, these strong emotions are communicating what words cannot. You know, if this story was instead this uh, story of Jesus looking over the city and going, and it says, yep, he looked at the city and he went, hey guys, you know about... 40 years or so, the city's going to be destroyed. Too bad, yeah. Okay, let's go. It's a different story. He weeps. Because weeping communicates something that words could not communicate. These strong emotions. And again, we're afraid of that sometimes in our lives. Some of us have kind of made it a, the 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 objective of our lives to always try to be even keeled. You know, never too happy, never too sad, never too angry, just always be even. Well, we need to know it's okay to be sad. It's okay to weep. It's okay to be happy too. It's okay to have emotions. The problem's not emotions. There's two problems, I think, that come out that Jesus helps us. He helps us see is like, this is what the greatest man would do. The problem's not emotions. The problem is when emotions control us. If you remember, some of you who are here, when I first came, 
You know, one of the first sermons I preached was on the tyranny of like. And I talked about how our, our culture is addicted to happiness. And we're told that the objective in life is to be happy. You know, our, our children are indoctrinated with this from movies, from when they're young, and then their parents tell them, hey, whatever makes you happy, I'm just happy that you're happy. You, you, you watch movie after movie that says, just follow your heart. Just, just do whatever and be whatever you want to be. And we say this again and again and again. We're just saying, let happiness control you. And I didn't resurrect the picture, but the picture I had was a picture of a clown driving a bus. And my thing is, you need to have happiness in your life. Happiness needs to be in the bus, but you can't let happiness drive. And that's what we do. You see, this addiction to happiness, this addiction to happiness is more than a problem. It's more than just simply a problem with no longer caring about what's right or what's wrong. It's no longer, you know, thinking about what's, what's, what's practical and what's good. That is a problem. It is a problem when happiness takes the place of good. But there's another problem. Because along with a culture addicted to happiness, is a culture that is increasingly becoming depressed. And I think it's more than just simply depression is, is, um, is diagnosed more. I think it is diagnosed more. But I think there's a rise in depression. And there's a rise in depression because if the highest end in life is your personal happiness, and you have decided your personal happiness is based on certain things that you cannot have, then you always be depressed. You always be sad. And I'm not talking about the kind of, kind of clinical depression that, that often has kind of some kind of physiological roots. I'm talking about the depression that, that's produced from a society that's addicted to happiness and then realizes that happiness can never really satisfy. If we're driven by our wants, we will never be satisfied. So one of the problems is the emotions take control. The problem isn't emotions, it's that they take control. Notice Jesus experiences the emotions, but they don't control him. He doesn't go, man, I am so sad for these guys that I'm going to totally alter the plan. I'm going to, in this moment, make an emotional decision because I'm so sad for Jerusalem. I'm so sad for these people. No. He's sad because it is human to be sad. But he stays the course. The second thing that we see what Jesus does is that Jesus' emotions are directed in the same way his life is directed. His emotions are directed towards others. They're not directed toward himself. He's not sad, which some people are. Like Some people go, would be like, oh, Poor Jerusalem, they're going to be destroyed. 
that makes me sad. Now I feel bad about myself because I'm sad. No. Jesus is sad for them. He's not, oh, sad that how it affects him. That's, again, the danger of sometimes when we have these, when we have emotions, that our emotions so much are about how it affects me. Jesus is expressing emotions, but he's thinking about how it's affecting them. And he's sad for what it's doing to them. He weeps for what it's doing to them. Emotions have this way that if, 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 if we keep them focused inward, they have a way of crippling us and turning us more and more inward. But when we become directed toward others, something happens. It's, it's healthier. It's a proper use of emotions. Oh, we don't always get it right. But they're there. You see, and I think there's going to be pushback on emotions. And the reason I think, you know, emotions are kind of coming back, especially among younger generations. Younger generations can be so driven by emotions. We were too. But even more so. But there's going to be pushback. Because if we're driven by emotions, then there's the fear that we're not going to make good decisions. And if we don't make good decisions, we just generate more situations where emotions are going to run wild. You see, in a world that's kind of lost any sense of what's of absolute truth, any sense of good and evil, when that's been lost, we're left to just deal with two things. How stuff makes us feel or whether something works or not. Emotionalism and pragmatism. And both of them, both of them are terrible masters. The second thing Jesus shows us, he says, he says, he entered the temple and began to drive out those who sold saying to them, it is written, my house shall be a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of robbers. He's doing this, by the way, in the last week of his life. And he was teaching daily in the temple. The chief priests and the scribes and the principal men of the people were seeking to destroy him, but they did not find anything they could do, for all the people were hanging on his words. This is his last week of his life, and Jesus knows it. And he's not hiding. He's going to the temple and he goes to the t temple and he confronts those who are, who are selling things in the temple and exchanging money for profit in the temple. It also says he's going there and he's teaching. And he's teaching in a, just a powerful way, so much so that, 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 again, crowds are gathering around him to hang on his every word. Jesus could have turned inward. He could have turned contemplative, you know, I only got a few days left. He could have, he could have just said, you know, I'm going to invest in my inner circle because I'm not going to be here for them, so it's just, I'm just going to spend the whole week with my inner circle. But no, Jesus continues to serve. And he shows us the greatest man, that this greatest man 
service to God, service to other people, it never ends. It's all the time. To his last breath, he serves. And I think this is another way our, our culture has affected us. Our culture has, has, has made a lot of people think, and it's maybe not you, but you know a lot of people who are like this, that, that you work not for fulfillment, and you don't work to serve, you work to earn. And so once you earn enough, you can stop working. And that's fine, I guess, if you're just talking about a job or a career. But when we bring that mentality into the church, it's a problem. Because some people might think that we, we only serve for a certain amount of time, or we serve for a certain purpose. But what Jesus shows us, Jesus, the greatest man he shows us, is that he's going to serve every moment. Now, what we do as we go through life might change. How we serve when we're children might be different of how we serve when we're teenagers or adults or senior adults. How we serve might change. But make no mistake, as believers, as part of the body of Christ, we are called to serve to our last breath. Last breath. That's what Jesus does. In a week where we would have totally excused him for just saying, you know, need a couple of days, hang out with my mom, because they're not going to see her. Need to hang out with my buddies. I just need to get away, because I'm about to go do something really hard. We would have been fine with it. But he doesn't do it. Up until his last moment, he serves. He's thinking of others. And we hear about that last moment, Matthew 27, 46. And Jesus is on the cross already, and we're jumping ahead a bit in our Passion Week. So we've left that Sunday, and we've moved ahead to Friday. And in 2746, it says, About the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, saying, Eli, Eli, lemma sabachthani, that is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Jesus doesn't just serve. He doesn't just show us that, hey, human beings, okay to have emotions. Just don't let them control you. It's okay to serve and that we serve to the very last moment. But then thirdly, he tells us, this is what the greatest man does. Unconditional obedience to God. Unconditional obedience to his word. That this is the highest expression of humanity. We need to understand what's happening at this moment when Jesus cries out, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Just like when I talked about the baby Jesus, the baby Jesus isn't like a fully aware human being, it's a baby. 
Jesus is experiencing life. The Son of God is experiencing life as a human being. And now on the cross, even though in reality the Son of God could never be separate from the Father and the Spirit, Jesus is experiencing total abandonment. Total abandonment. What he's saying when he's saying, why have you forsaken me? is that in that moment, he cannot experience God's presence. And you might go, well, how is this possible? That doesn't make sense. Think about it. Those of you who consider yourselves Christians, if you consider yourselves Christians, you have God's Spirit with you. God's Spirit is with you 24 hours a day, seven days a week, every moment. And yet you know times when you feel completely alone. You know times when when you don't know that God hears you. You're calling out and you cannot sense his presence. We know these times. A guy who wrote a while ago called it the dark night of the soul. And I'm so glad Jesus had this moment. I mean, I hate the fact that he had this moment. But for my own sake, I'm glad he had this moment. Because then I know when I have those moments, it's not because I'm weak. It's because God is looking for my unconditional obedience. Jesus, on the cross, feeling completely abandoned, can no longer even sense God's presence, feels completely forsaken. He knows why. He knows that that he had to become the sin offering. That he became sin, even though he never sinned. He knows why, but he's still abandoned. He still feels abandoned. And even though he feels abandonment in a way we could never understand, he still obeys. He doesn't say, okay, pow, end it, over. He still obeys. It's the greatest human because he was obeying God even when he didn't feel God's presence. Still obeys. We see Jesus, the greatest man, brings together these, this perfect expression of emotions, this perfect life of service, and this perfect obedience to God. It's a high standard, and we're not called to be perfect. We're only called to become more and more like the perfect. And we're not left on our own to do it. We're given his word, we're given each other, but more importantly, we're given his spirit. As we think about Jesus this week, as we celebrate what he did, my challenge to you is, Not what he did, but what is he doing 
right now in your life? What is he doing right now in our church? Because if he's truly the greatest man to you, then you will want to do everything you can to be more like him. You will want to be the one who sees the world that's broken and you weep over it. You will want to be the one that will serve to your last breath. And you will want to be the one that will obey God, whether you're getting anything out of it or not in that moment. 